before I set out on this task of going through Romans 3, you will have your Bibles open there if you don't already, please. And going through this section, I feel a bit like a surgeon doing open heart surgery, whatever that feeling is like. I can just imagine it quite daunting. That you want to get everything right. There's not much margin for error. And so, uh, in view of that fact, I'm, I've prepared my message a little differently. I manuscripted. So I just didn't want to trust my memory. I mean, every preacher goes through that little personal uh, anxiety. You know, there's the sermon you want to preach. There's the sermon you preached. And then there's the sermon that you wish you had preached. And uh, I know I know that condition very well. And uh, so to try to mitigate the, the, the latter one, the one I wish I had preached, I'm, I'm trying by giving... I'm making sure that I've got what I want to say right in front of me. So, so you'll understand that I, I don't usually do that, but I consider that this is of such unusual importance in this passage. And as we will walk our way through it. I will tell you right up front what I want you to go home with from this. Now, how the Spirit of God takes His Word and searches out our hearts with it, well, that's to be determined. I'm, I'm not attempting to limit how the Spirit takes the word of truth and probes and opens up our thoughts and moves in our heart. But I want this to be sure. I want this as to your, your takeout. And that is, what can we do to bring God to people? What can we do to bring God to people? I didn't say to bring people to God. The greatest problem is how to bring God to us. And this passage speaks to that. And I would like for us to be more ardent, avid, committed people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a time when it seems that the patients are running the insane asylum. I know that's a politically incorrect word. Maybe I should say uh, a moral insane asylum. Supreme Court has given a legal status to same-sex marriage. And if one defends traditional marriage, in case any are confused between a man and a woman, that uh, he or she could be in danger of losing their jobs, or fined for not celebrating same-sex marriage. You are a bigot if you defend opposite-sex public bathrooms. And, and I also noted this in my reading even in the last day, that all this um, effort to assert rights, rights. Everybody's got rights. And one of those that's pressed is the right to die with dignity, i.e. suicide in some situations. If that becomes a right, then could it not become a right for one to say that they have a right to end someone else's life if they think that would be the better good? Once you cut yourself loose and you're untethered from the moral law of God, you'll believe anything. That's where we are. And the current presidential race presents us with choices we wish we didn't have to make. That's as kind of way as I think I could say it without getting political here. Well, what is mankind's greatest need? Our greatest need is not a new president of the United States of America. It is not law or laws that honor God's moral laws, as important as that is. It's not socialism or government solution to human problems. 
It's not the control of immigration into the United States. It's not even to be able to defeat our enemies at home or abroad. Those are not our greatest needs. Our greatest problem is how to get God to us. How is that done? How is this solved? And here is where we meet the answer in Romans 3, 21 through 28. Our greatest need, the answer to this problem, is found in the only book that God has written. And that would be Scripture. That will be the Bible. And, more specifically, the flagship book of the Bible, the book of Romans. And someone said that if Romans is a little Bible, then Romans 3, 21 through 28 is a little Romans. Do you get it? This is why I've used this term, the marrow of the gospel. The greatest need of every man or woman is how to be right with God. Let's proceed. As Frank pointed out, the first two and a half chapters of Romans They're given to a powerful indictment of the human race. It's not pretty. In the words of one writer, these chapters in the first first two and a half chapters of, of Romans give us, quote, the sad story of the ruin of the race because of sin. Remember that word, sin? And what we are given here is that we're presented with a a global courtroom drama. The defendants, I'll tell you what I will do. Could I have everyone stand just for a moment? We're going to play like. Court's in session. I'm not the judge. No, I'm standing with you. But I want to tell you something that's quite sobering. We're standing in the court representing the entire human race. Pagan, the person without the Bible, the moralist, the one who has moral emotions and wants to do right things but doesn't do them, and the religious person, the person with the Bible, that the verdict is guilty. We are all guilty. Guilty. No exceptions. Guilty is charged. Where all of us are sinners. We're born sinners. We can do nothing to please God ourselves. Nothing within our natural man that can give man, give us merit in God's sight. We who are standing representing the human race, we are all guilty. Man hates God. Without the restraints of God's government would go from bad to worse. It's going to take someone outside the human race to remedy this problem. We are all guilty. Scary, scary thought. You may be seated. Thank you. Now you know we're playing like. Sort of. Not through with us on that one. We'll come back around to that if you're feeling a bit If perhaps that was a microaggression and you feel offended, uh, just please stay with us here. I want to show you how in Romans 3 and 21 through 28, five wonderful revelations about God's remedy for our sinful predicament are given in these verses. As James Boyce has said, longtime pastor now with the Lord, the 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, he said, the issues of eternity hang on these truths. Oh, they do. The issues of eternity hang on these truths. And we have in this section, this is another reason why I had to be very specific and write it out word for word, is that there is so much here. And given my tendencies, 
I would want to chase down every word, the words of the vocabulary. It's a virtual treasure chest. Justification, redemption, propitiation, righteousness, grace. It goes on. They're all here. The first of these revelations is given in verses 21 and 22. I will summarize them this way. I won't reread the text, but I will be working with the text. If you have your Bible open there, you'll, you'll see the connections. My first statement, seeking to assess or state what is, I think, the issue, the truth. In Christ, in Christ, God has provided the righteousness which he requires. Now, immediately, we are presented with two little words. Uh, let me preface some. This is just a parenthesis here. I'm going to say a, a few, not many. I want to say a few Greek words. In here. I'm not trying to show off my great scholarship with the Greek language. Uh, the Lord knows that uh, those uh, five, six, seven, eight years studying the Greek language was some, uh, it was some real work. And so, but I do it. I do it so that uh, there can... Re- there can reverberate in your inner ears some connections that will move you to see some truths that, some truths that lie just beneath the surface of the way in which we read the text. Just a few, just a few. I don't want to disturb you think only those who know Greek can know the Bible. No, 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 not saying that. But now, end of parenthesis, but now, those two little words, Nunide. What are they? Five, one, two, three, five letters. Nunide, two words. But now. But. Little word but. It's like a revolving door. It's a door. But looks back. You look back at this, the, this bridge. Oh, it's like over a spiritual gorge. And here, this but draws our attention to this contrast that Paul's created. From 118 down through chapter 3 and verse 20, he's taking us to the bottom of the pit of human depravity. And there's no way out. There's not a shred of human goodness that could form a rope or a ladder of escape. We all stood, and we can't get out. We stood acknowledging on representing the whole human race our fallenness, our sinfulness, we're guilty. The darkness of human sin, but now, now is the arrival of Jesus Christ. Aha! It's like coming in from a severely cold, bitter, harsh winter wind, and then you come through the door, and it's suddenly 72 degrees. So now, Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, a great expositor of the word in the last century, he said this, now this thing that has happened has changed everything. That's it. It's changed everything. And there, here now is the way of salvation from the wrath to which our sin has subjected us. Now, if you're with me still, looking at verses 21, 22. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest. See that word righteousness. This is a big word in Romans and in Scripture. It's a key word in Romans. 35 times in the book of Romans. Four times in verses 21 to 26. There's a play in the words in the original language that you miss in English because the word righteousness, dikaiosune. And then there is the word we're going to look at a little later on that translated justification. The verb is dikaio, dikaio. This is the, the same mother word. We miss that. But there is a critical connection between the two. Righteousness and justified. All right, come back to Righteousness. We see here this, then, that there is a righteousness that comes from God. Now, sort things out. Let's sort it out. It will just take a few seconds to do it. There are three ways in which righteousness, I could say four, or I'll explain the fourth one a little later. 
But three ways in which we understand righteousness. There is the fact that God is righteous. What does this mean? It means that God does what's right. He always does what is right. There never has been a time when he didn't do what was right. And he always will do what is right. He is right. He doesn't have to pull out any kind of book to determine what he should do tomorrow, the next day, or today to be right. Because he is right. He is the definition of what is right. So, he is right all the time. But then there's another use of the word righteousness. This is the righteousness which God demands, namely of you and of me. In Matthew and 5 and 48. Be perfect. God is perfect. Be perfect. Be righteous. Well, we're in trouble. We're in deep trouble when we're told, given that responsibility. But here there's a third use. And that is, there is a righteousness which God gives. It's not his attribute that he gives. He doesn't make us little gods. But he gives a righteousness. And that which is needed to please God. One writer's put it this way. He plants his own life within us. It is a perfect life that he plants within all who believe. So that's the righteousness. This righteousness. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What is, there is a righteousness that is available and that he will give. Now, we have to look further and see what that is. But now notice something else in this verse. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Two things here. Notice. In the first instance, it's apart from the law. Apart from the law. There is nothing in no system of law keeping, certainly not in keeping the Mosaic law, law of of, of Scripture anywhere, that is sufficient to save us from our plight or to give us merit so that we can be accepted by God. None whatsoever. And secondly, You will notice, though, he says that, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So, the Old Testament, the scripture, it's not our enemy. Though it is not, it cannot save us. That is, that which God has revealed as to what we should do, shouldn't do. When he says that it's revealed in the law and the prophets, he's referring, at this point, to the entirety of the Old Testament. And the point is that there are ways in which God has revealed this manifested righteousness before it became manifested, before Christ came. How? Well, we can only fly by, but in predictions of our coming Savior, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Chastening for our well-being fell on him, as Isaiah 53 And there are many other places like that, predictions. And then there are institutions in the Old Testament where when you look at them carefully, you can see, for example, in Passover, the blood on the the lentil on the door and the death angel passing over and the slaughter of the Passover lamb. And then you have the tabernacle and then the temple. It was just rich, a wordless book and rich in gospel truth. Only one way to approach God. And that is through the shedding of blood of an animal, a substitute. Only that way. All of that very specific protocol to wor- in worshiping God. And then you have the commandments of God as well, which are loaded with further manifestation of this righteousness before the hand. So do you have that fact? Witnessed in the law of the prophets. Now, I can't linger here, and I'm here. I've got to discipline myself to stay with with what I've written. And uh, I, I will say this, though, about the sacrificial system. It was hugely important. And it was a great pedagogical, you understand this word, pedagogical, teaching method. For over 1,500 centuries, actually, if you want to run it all the way back to Adam, I think you could, because God slew animals to clothe Adam and Eve. 
but it became codified in the Mosaic system. All of the ways it was sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Though you would have seen all those tribes camped out around the tabernacle in the wilderness. And at that point in Israel's history, we think of it, well, it was the flags, the banners flying in the breeze and all the neatly, the tents and all in neat rows and such a well-ordered community. And right in the middle is this tabernacle with a glory cloud over it, fire by night, pillar cloud by day, and the smoke going up. And the songs going up to God in praise and adoration. The priests going about their work. The smell, the smell of the smoke, a barbecue. So there would have been some immediate sensual experience. Some that would have been pleasant. But right in the middle of it, it was a slaughterhouse. How would you like to have been a priest? I've thought about that reading through it again. I do that every year. I read through that. I said, those priests had a nasty job. How would you like to do that all day long every day? Whereas they worked on shifts. Thousands and thousands and thousands of animals. Blood, 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 death, blood, death, blood, death. Why? It was God sinking deeply into Israel this sin, death, sin, death, sin, death, sin, blood, death. For centuries, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now it says that it's been manifested. Pick up on this. That is, it's visible in concrete form. Well, the the Greek students, you would have looked at that verb and you would see something about it, that it says that it, it stands manifested. That is, it remains before us. And it... It was, and the reason for the manifestation is this, the reason that verb is used. It was veiled before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The need for manifestation has been given in verses, in chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. It broke into time and stands there. Stands there. And the only way to get this righteousness which God requires is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Hold on to that. I'm not going to unpack that, but you're going to, you can look down through the text and you can see I, I printed it out here for me in large print. But uh, I look at the times faith, believe, one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, will you hold on and we'll get to faith and we'll come at it then. But you just see, 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 see. Notice the emphasis. You get it. Faith. Faith, that's the way it comes, this manifested righteousness. And I said that there was another kind of righteousness, and I guess I ought to at least give a nod to it. And it's one that, and it's not one that we should really, we would not seek refuge in it. Paul didn't. Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 6, where Paul's giving his resume and how he was before he came to conversion in Jesus Christ, that where he said, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Oh, so there was a standard up to which, to which he could live, but it wouldn't save it, didn't save him. But there is this, yes, there is a works righteousness, but that does not get us God to us. There is a faith in Jesus' righteousness. So in other words, God's perfect moral condition is available to those who trust in Jesus Christ. Now let's go to the second revelation. Everyone, all right, for there is no distinction, you're looking at the text, there is no distinction for, in verse 23, for when did we learn this verse? I was still spiritually wet behind the ears. I was learning this because I wanted to tell my friends. I wanted to give them the gospel. And I was introduced to the Roman road uh, right away. And Roman, the Roman road is, here it is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right, consider this. Everyone without distinction is in need of the righteousness which God requires. The reason for this need is why? All have sinned. You notice in verse 22, he says, for there is no distinction. You see those words. There is no difference, whether pagan or moralist 
or religious man, all need the same righteousness. There is no distinction. And because all have sinned. And it's offered to the unreligious and it's offered to the religious on the same terms. We could put it this way. Yes, there are varying degrees of guilt, but all are in prison. We've all missed the mark. All of us. I remember quite well an illustration that was used. It was actually used in the message of the evangelist the night I was converted in March of 1956. Evangelist Fred Brown, one of the greatest evangelists in this country. I didn't know it at the time, but I found out later. I said, thank you, God, because I heard the gospel so clear. And it was, well, thank you, Lord. He gave this illustration. I kind of tweaked it a little bit, but trying to help us to understand about this gap. Let's imagine that we have to get across a great gorge here. I'll just say I put it at 40 feet. We've got to get across. Down below, there are crocodiles sunning on the sandy beach below. 40 feet. We've got to get from here to there. All right. There's a distance to be jumped. Let's say, for the sake of the story, that there are three of us. And uh, I'm going to go and make my feeble attempt to get to the neck to cross the bank over to the other side. Oh, these legs are not what they used to be. I obviously don't make it. (laughs) There are those crocodiles sunning on the sandbar below. And then, all right, let's just take one of the better high school athletes in the area. I like track meets. I see one at least once a week this season. Watch the long jump. They call it, we used to call it the broad jump. It's a long jump. So I'm going to get some of the best, one of the best broad jumpers. Just distance 40 feet. He gets back. He goes 25 feet. Wow. Incredible. That makes the sports page. Crocodiles down below. But then let's get the Olympic long jump champion. Best effort. World record, 32 feet. Now, for those of you who know distances in the long jump, you you appreciate that it's good. But when it comes to 40 feet, well, the crocodiles are having a feast. None of us make it. Everyone without exception falls short of the glory of God. What is it that each of us falls short of? It's, well, it says the glory, the doxes. What is this doxes? It's the, it's the sum total of all of God's perfections. It was presented in the Old Testament. Remember the Shekinah, the glory, the Hebrew word kavod, doxes, in the, in the Greek. It's this glory. Man, when God wanted to present himself in a powerful uh, visual way, it was with light. Overwhelming light. You can't look at the sun. It's too much. It's the perfection of God. We've all fallen short of Jesus Christ, the perfection of God. And if we are not as perfect as he is, you're crocodile food. And so therefore, What we do is that we exchange the glory for something in creation. We need to think here about the great exchange of idolatry. Paul went through this much in Romans 1. God's belittled. He's despised. We insist on substituting our gods for God. Look at the state of the world. Let's go to the third revelation now. All right, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all in sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. Consider this third one. In Christ, 
In Christ, God credits us with the righteousness with which, which he requires. In Christ, he credits us. Now, the only way of dealing with this universal need of mankind is that in order to be put in a right standing before God, something has to be done, and God has to do it. Now, where we are here, folks, is that if I said we're in ground ground zero for the marrow, the gospel, we are really at ground zero here. We're in the what is called the seat of the doctrine, the seat of the doctrine of this justification by faith. I can tell you this. Others have been here before we got here. I will tell you that Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, he taught that book of Romans as a seminary professor and was just smitten with this as the Spirit of God came into his mind to give him clarity. And here's the way it works. That what God does in order for him to come to us, it's done on the basis of what Christ has done and therefore it's absolutely free. You notice that he says immediately that we're justified by grace. It's a gift. The gift by his grace. Now several matters, and I have to keep moving here. It's such a temptation to put it in part, but look, look at the word justified. How can we as sinners be as perfect as God? That's the question. That's the dilemma. It's been stated this way. And I quote, God is able to give us all of his perfections. His righteousness can be credited to our account so that we can enter into heaven immediately at death. Yes, that's it. This is called imputed righteousness. Now, don't let this theological word impute, don't let it spook you. I know we don't use it often, but to impute. We could say, for example, well, student's not doing well in school, wants to give him a report. Say, I impute his failure to laziness. What do you mean? It belongs to, to belong to. To impute righteousness means you get it, you receive it, belongs to you. So what God does is that he can declare us righteous on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. He jumped the 40 feet. (laughs) A lot of room spared. He's the only one. And he acquits the guilty sinner. This doesn't mean to be made righteous. Very important distinction. Not infusing us with righteousness, but declaring us as righteous. God can can declare us righteous on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, we come right face on with the subject of what I would call grace and demerit. Louis Barry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, has a wonderful book. Just the title of it is Grace. If you can find it, it may be reprinted, but it's out there. I have the old paperback edition. And in this, he has a section, a chapter, it's right up front, seven fundamental facts about grace. And he says, the first two, grace is not withheld because of demerit. And secondly, grace cannot be lessened because of demerit. Grace will never be withheld because of anything we may have done, however evil it was, nor will it be lessened because of that or any other evil we may do. All right, now this say, okay, whoa, it's swimming a bit on this one. Hold on. Maybe this would help. I'll give an illustration. I'm going to try to put two illustrations back to back and see if this will help. First one, I want to go back to 1955, 56, high school ROTC. Oh, it was very important, very important. We didn't know if we were going to be in World War III. Everybody had to take it. Well, all the guys did. And I can remember that there was a very special time for some guys in ROTC. And you would see them after school. And they would be in their uniforms. Oh, and it was especially difficult in those old, <laughs> old uniforms, those Eisenhower jackets. And, and, uh, and they would be, 
doing this, and on this shoulder would be an M1 rifle. And they would be going back and forth, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe more. Back and forth, back and forth. You know what they were doing? You could get demerits in ROTC. Of course, you could get demerits. By the way, demerits, for those uh, who may not know, there were consequences to your behavior in those days. Is that okay? There were consequences. And Mama didn't run up to the principal and say, my son can't do that. Uh, But you just walking it off, walking off those demerits. But do you know, folks, you could walk for eternity and never walk off the demerit that's against us, namely our sin and violation of the law of God that we're sinners. Now, the other illustration, back to the demerits thing. You know, there are those who think this way. The self-righteous person may think, here is this barrel of grace. And the self-righteous person would think, well, I'm not, I'm a pretty good person. Make a few mistakes. So you just need a shovel in, a little bit of grace, just a little bit. That's all you need. Or the other person said, oh, goodness, you wouldn't believe the sins I've committed the mess I've made, and you think, oh my, this is a lot more grace. Wrong. Wrong. All need all the grace that God gives, no matter what, how we perceive ourselves, because we are all sinners and in need of that grace. And, oh, I'll tell you, grace, beautiful word, um, wonderful truth, It's a pride buster. It is a pride buster. Grace humbles us. That's why I read somewhere that an arrogant Christian is an oxymoron. I didn't say a Christian is a moron. You understand the oxymoron? That that's why arrogance and pride. I don't. I don't need to. I don't need that. Or I'm Bible. I don't need. I don't need to hear the Bible. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'll just ask for free. I'll, I'll do it and then ask for forgiveness. You know, there are all kinds of ways that we show our pride. Oh, that's not the thinking. That's not, it's contrary, contrary to what it means. So the price of the life of the Son of God has to be paid. We must move along. He says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a word, redemption. It's a big one in the Greek. It's apolutotrosis. It's a double compound word and to buy out from. It's a word that comes out of this word redemption. It is a word that comes from the slave market of the first century world. Everyone would have understood it in that sense. In listening to this epistle being read to the church in Rome, they would immediately connect it with what one does and goes into the slave market and uh, they would uh, make their bids and they'd put up their price and they would purchase a slave and buy them from that particular condition. Or it was also a possible word that was used to describe the process if a slave wanted to buy his or her way uh, out of slavery and they would come up and they would have to pay what, uh, pay what was called manumission. And it would be taken to the temple, and there would be in the temple, you would deposit it in the temple treasury and agreed upon amount, and you could be free. Apollotrosis, redemption. But you know, I really love the one, the, I think this story uh, really uh, gets it, and it's, uh, it's one from the Old Testament. You remember the story of Hosea? And here's Hosea, the Lord tells the prophet, says, I want you to marry a woman, and she's going to be a wife of adulteries. He doesn't tell her you go marry a prostitute. That's misunderstanding of it. He says, go marry a woman of adulteries, and she's going to be an unfaithful woman. So he marries her, and they have three children. And she is drawn to other men big time. She becomes notoriously unfaithful, and she cheats on him. Infidelities mount up, and she leaves the home, and she's out here in this place with this man, in this place with that man. And finally, she gets thrown from one to the other. And when they're through with her, they put her out and sell her for a, as a slave. And so there she is in the slave market. Who shows up? Hosea. <laughs> oh, you're, I know you're recalling it that. Ah, ha, 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 ha. 
trapped ourselves, God splitting up his wonderful, these truths through Hosea, he purchases her. He pays and brings her, and that's not the end of the story, he brings her into his home as his bride and loves her. She is his. Oh, this word is so rich. What it says is this, that the substitution of Jesus Christ in our place as guilty sinners sets us free from sin's bondage to, to serve God. And it's a loving relationship in which he brings us as being redeemed by him. He owns us in love. Not different ways to be owned. <laughs> Not as a hard taskmaster who just seeks to control, but one who owns and loves and wants us to bring glory to him, and he's tender toward us. So our redemption and justification then cost us absolutely nothing. They're free. Cost God everything. But it's free. And Jesus Christ was substituted in the place of sinners. The ransom is paid to God. Fourth revelation. In Christ, the righteousness which God requires has been made public. You see that? Being justified as a gift through the redemption is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly in pro through propitiation in his blood through faith. Look at this. Consider the, Christ, the price that Christ paid. It's God the Father who sent the Son into the world. Jesus' blood propitiated or satisfied God's wrath. Hugely important here. Propitiated. The word that's translated propitiation is hilasterion. Hilasterion. It comes from a word, hileos. Hileos means uh, Gentle or merciful. And here, I'll go to the Old Testament. This is where we find this beautiful picture of it. You remember the instructions that God gave to Moses in building the tabernacle and all the furniture. You remember right up front is the Ark of the Covenant, a box, a three by nine by two by three by two by three. You could get it in the you could get it in the back seat of your car. Spots and in this box, the moral law of God was there, and a pot of manna and Aaron's rod, but in that box, the Ark of the Covenant. But it was two parts. There was a lid on top with a cherubim, remember the wings that come out on the top, and it was golden. And there was this top. And once a year, once a year, the priest, the Day of Atonement, would take two goats. And the one goat slit its throat and bring the blood and sprinkle it on that lid. Do you know what that lid was called? The mercy seat. For then at that point, for another year, God would show mercy. He would be gentle with Israel. He would do that because that blood had been shed every year, every year. And so now here comes one who's manifested who is that propitiation, that mercy seat. And it, it's Jesus Christ. And so therefore, the extension of forgiveness is there. Now, I would just, I would like to really work on this one a bit, but I would maybe put it this way. You know, when you extend forgiveness to those who need it, and when we overlook faults of others as Christians, we are very much Christ-like. And a Christian says, I'm not going to forgive They'll come to me. I'm not going to them. Or this anger and bitterness. Oh, it's so, it, it's enjoyable. Yes, yeah, sin is perverted that way. But when we forgive, when we're gentle, when we're merciful, we're very much like Jesus Christ. So he says, then being propitiated in his blood through faith. Now, I will I have to add this, that the greatest problem, therefore, is how to get God to sinners. Notice he says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed. And 
what does he mean by this? Why does he come up to say this? Because God, it could be misunderstood. You think, wait a minute now. All those people in the Old Testament, all Israel in the wilderness, David, Solomon. I'm reading Solomon now. We're in Kings and all the animals sacrificed, but his own sin. And I mean, wait a minute. Animals, you, you, you sin and an animal dies? Is that it? So someone could say, well, God really goes kind of light on sin, doesn't he? Just kill an animal. Oh, no. So in the manifestation of God himself incarnate in Christ, the God-man, the perfect man, there was he who did what? Who lived that perfect life. And there he was then. He was killed. Blood was shed. So why? He said in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Oh, it's like this. Just a little quick illustration. Maybe you've done this in your own home. You give, you got some company coming over. Maybe it's visiting missionaries or somebody. Yeah, things are just up a notch or two, you know, to behavior and etiquette. And, and so you kind of lay down. Now, this is the way it's supposed to be. You don't reach. You wait till you know, you're served and you don't talk over people and on and on. And then the company comes. <laughs> Hello, where did they go? And they're, they're like a bunch of pagans at the table. All right, dads. Okay, they go on and have a conversation. Then dinner's over. The gifts are gone. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And then, it's a reckoning time. We're going to talk about it. They can get away with it. But then he says, for the demonstration of his righteousness, that he might be just in the justifier. Why just? Because God could be misrepresented. He could be slandered, maligned, misunderstood, misrepresented. It wasn't that God took sin lightly. He saw himself as just in the gift of his love. You know this. This is where love and justice, they, they kiss at the cross. Kiss there. And then he says, to justifier. He can now justify us because of the payment of the price of Jesus Christ. So for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so understanding history, we need the gospel to help us to understand history, interpret history, don't we? When we look back and when we look forward and we look at our own present time. Finally, we conclude. There is only one way to receive God's forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. And that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 27 and 28. You notice he just, Paul says, where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Why would he need to say that? Well, I would tell you that the Jewish audience that were you know, in the hearing of this book and in the hearing of Paul's messages, they did have a problem. They, hey, listen, we're people to whom God gave his law. We have been singled out from among the nations, and they, look, we may have our difficulties, but look at what's out there. Look what's out there. And they may have thought very well, as many did, that, oh, through our achievements and through our righteous deeds. No, no, no. That he's saying literally, where then is the boasting, the well-known boasting? I think he may be speaking here of the well-known boasting of the Jews. They really would have. Look at us. Look at the Pharisees. But the ground is a level at the foot of the cross. Somebody has said it this way. That pride, which is what goes on here, to want to, want to uh, preempt, preempt faith. Someone has said that, someone has said that, uh, somebody said that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everybody ill except the one who has it. <laughs> yes, oh, we are afflicted, we are afflicted, we are afflicted. But he says, where then is boasting, it is excluded by what kind of law? Is there some law principle? Oh, and all the religions of the world have their own contrivances, their own systems, where then is their boasting uh, that there is the law of faith. And I would just conclude. I'll shorten. I am shortening, believe it or not. I will conclude with this statement. It is by faith alone that we are declared no longer guilty. The legal issues between us and God are settled. I would have... I, this is the point where now I'd say we all stood and we're all guilty. Okay, 
could I come back now, lest the offense linger? <laughs> that if you're in Christ, I would probably say it this way, though I don't want to embarrass anyone, that all of those who are in Christ, and about the way I'm to describe it here, you could have sat down. Thank you. You can sit and rest in God's forgiveness and not guilty. How many would have remained standing? I'll finish. So by faith alone, God's wrath is no longer against us. Our personal issues between God and us are settled. By faith alone, we belong to God. He sets his love upon us in a unique way. And all of this is because it is by grace through faith that we are placed in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the grandest, well, it's one of the greatest of all examples of this by faith alone. You remember when the Lord Jesus Christ hung there on that cross and he was framed by two, says thieves. Uh, Luke uses the word as Matthew, insurrectionist. These guys were not cat burglars. These guys were probably terrorists. They had gone up against Rome and lost. And there they were and for six hours. They were listening to how Jesus was responding. And where at first they were taunting, taunting him and mocking him. But then at the very last, at the very last of those six hours, miserably, in a miserable condition on those crosses, and then saying, Lord, will you remember me this day? Will you? And Jesus said, you will be with me this day in paradise. Not down there, now. At, I'm going to tell you, when, you're, when your hands are hung out on a piece of wood and you can't walk, you can hardly talk, and you can't do anything, there's no good deed, good, good work that you can do to merit God's acceptance of you. He said, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. That is grace, exquisitely so. No thing that we can do to bring God to us. He has come to us and given us this gift. Is it yours? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you? Have you? Would you have to remain standing? Let's pray. God, my Father, I pray that if there are those who would have had to remain standing on their feet, Lord, I pray, and I will pause now, Anyone would like to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. You can pray. Ah, yes, no. Just saying a prayer doesn't save you. But nobody is saved who doesn't call out to God for salvation. Oh, God, I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. I deserve eternal hell. God, I thank you that, oh, that you have provided the perfection that I need that is in Christ, in his death, and in his resurrection. He's alive. And Lord, I now want to receive. I transfer my trust from all those things in which I would trust and I put my trust in you. Forgive me. Save me. I ask it in Jesus' name. Father, if there's one who has made a confession of such, may he or she now come forth in all kinds of beautiful ways to see a life that's transformed by your grace. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.